0: On the third Thursday of every month, pastors and church leaders from near and far gather together for a time of friendship, gospel encouragement, and ministry insights in the warehouse at the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. The following is from one such third Thursday gathering. All right, I think we're on here. I had to move this back as far as I can to get into some light just uh, just turned 50, and uh, everything's just is shutting down. <laughs> it was remarkable how rapid the decline uh, has been uh, just in the last few days. But, uh, and I'm also grateful that y'all decided to show up on the same day. That's, uh, that's, that's great. I'm used to six to eight of us in here in a nice intimate setting. We just kind of talk amongst ourselves, but I'm a little intimidated by y'all. I'm grateful for you. Um, I don't... Um, I don't have really any business being up here, so take, take it or leave it, I guess is kind of how I'll start uh, with that. There was a lot of different directions we could have gone today, um, just because I like to talk about stuff, so, uh, but we kind of landed on this idea of um, kind of how not to quit, so I'm going to kind of start with encouraging you to quit and then we'll kind of move our way way through that. As I was thinking about this idea of quitting, and we'll kind of unpack what we're talking about. Um, There's probably a connotation that's already kind of coming into your mind about what that might mean in this context, but I think uh, this kind of comes from the perspective in my mind as I was thinking about this of what causes men and women to quit ministry. It's generally kind of where we'll'll we'll be, and I think sometimes that includes um, our own contribution maybe to that process sometimes you you are you are quit, you are made to quit, and sometimes you you, you, you end in a, a season, um, and there are different factors um, uh, around that but um, but I think the the, the, the seed of <sighs> not finishing where you are in the moment is planted really early on with ministers, um, and in ministry. Um, it's, it, it kind of comes in, I think creeps in at the beginning of our journey. Um, and it grows along the way in at least three areas and there's probably a lot more, but these were really the three that kind of came into my mind. Um, I don't think we really understand the responsibility, um, or, or maybe we mix up the priorities. And I think part of that in my mind is, um, and it may be um, kind of hard to hear, or may, I hate to break it to you, but the most important thing you do in ministry is not preach. And so I think sometimes that becomes the thing. and And early on, we begin to style around that and we begin to think about that and we begin to focus, hyper-focus on it. I think another area that um, kind of plays into this and gets planted in our minds early on is uh, we place expectations on ourselves and others. And we allow others to put those expectations on us. And so that's a seed of, it's, a, it's, a, it's an infection. It gets in there and, and starts to mess with us and begins to erode the foundation of the calling and, um, and then I think we also measure the seed is planted really early. I went, was in ministry for years and years and then went to seminary. And it was, um, it was a bittersweet experience. And um, part of it was looking around at all the young men and women going through this process. And um, knowing that... that They were walking into something, and I'm not sure they were being prepared for what they were about to walk into. Um, So uh, I think we measure success by comparison um, and comfort. It's shaped a lot by media, social and otherwise, and by salary surveys. And I think those three things, at, at a minimum, begin the kind of germination process in our hearts that can lead us to an end, maybe prematurely. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, this work that God calls us to do. I think that's why St. James tells us that not many of us should aspire to this, right? In, uh, in chapter 3, he said, my fellow believers, you know you're, that those who teach, that those who are in that, that, that place of responsibility will be judged more strictly and uh, St. Benedict in his Rule for Monks describes the abbot's role in a, in a monastery or a, a Christian community. And it, re, it has really shaped my thinking about the role that um, I have here um, as an elder. And it's one of the reasons why I serve here with Pastor Jeremy. Um, it, this is probably the only place I would. If I wasn't doing this, I'd go back to doing what I was doing before. If I wasn't doing it here. And it's partially because of this. So if you'll oblige me, I'll get my clicks, my favorite Christmas present. How about that? That's a fancy. And now I can see. This is amazing. And I'm wearing contacts, bifocal contacts. That's what I'm telling you. it's going bad. It's going downhill fast. The abbot, the spiritual leader, the spiritual father, must always remember what he is and remember what he is called, aware that more will be expected of a man to whom more has been entrusted. He must know what a difficult and demanding burden he has undertaken, directing souls and serving a variety of temperaments, coaxing and reproving and encouraging them as appropriate. He must so accommodate and adapt himself to each one's character and intelligence that he will not only keep the flock entrusted to his care from dwindling, but will rejoice in the increase of a good flock. Above all, he must not show too great a concern for the fleeting and temporal things of this world, neglecting or treating lightly the welfare of those entrusted to him. Rather, he should keep in mind that he has undertaken the care of souls. That's the job. For whom he must give an account that he may not plead lack of resources as an excuse. For he is to remember what is written, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And again, those who fear him lack nothing. The abbot, the spiritual leader, the minister, must know that anyone undertaking the charge of souls must be ready to account for them, whatever the number of those he has in his care. And let him realize that on judgment day, he will surely have to submit a reckoning to the Lord for all their souls, and indeed for his own as well. And in this way, while always fearful of the future examination of the shepherd about the sheep entrusted to him, and careful about the state of others' accounts, he, must, he becomes concerned also about his own. And while helping others to amend by his warnings, he achieves the amendments of his own faults." And I like that because it, it helps center. I, I meditate through that rule three times a year. And I love coming back around to this, this time of year and that reminder of what the actual responsibility is that we have. And so much of our focus and so much of our time is maybe devoted to lesser things or we conflate certain things. Say, if I do this well, that's accomplishing that. And that may or may not be the case. So just take a second at your table and um, and ask, kind of share with each other. Just really, we'll go fast, because just a couple of minutes. Uh, why do you do this work? The, uh, the why the why is important. That you're kind of coming back to that. Coming back to that idea of... What kind of got us into this, and maybe even through the filter of maybe what some of those perceptions were; those may those were probably unspoken. I got into this because um, of those maybe those three things we talked about at the very beginning. But if you find that in in thinking about your kind of why versus what that care for souls idea entails, if if those can't be reconciled, or it gets to this place where you um, don 't want that responsibility, then I, I just would encourage you to quit. So I know our talk today is how not to, but uh, you know if we need to thin the herd, you know, so be it uh, today. Um, it's better it 's better to leave a vocation that you feel really strongly that you were called to. If it results in the salvation of your soul, and so I just I don't say that lightly. I'm saying that from my the place of my journey, and uh, I don't know I don't know if I, I knew him well enough for him to know me after years and years and years in ministry so because I didn't understand the responsibility. I didn't know what that meant. So now take one more kind of 2 minute conversation time and just kind of why why do you why do you perceive pastors, ministers, vocational um, professional Christians, I like to call them, why do they quit? Why do they quit? You know, the reality is that that it happens, you know. We we know uh, we we all have we all have the stories we're, as we're as we're recounting, kind of what what causes this, what we've observed. Most likely, we're thinking of someone. Most likely, we're thinking of a scenario. It may even be in our own lives. Um, each of us along the way are likely going to find that there is a we'll, we'll, we're going to find ourselves in a season when we are unable to perform um, in ways and in places in the service of God's people. It's going to look different. But that doesn't mean you, you aren't still able to be a saint. I may not be able to do this. There may be a disqualification. There may be something that's happened. But that doesn't, that doesn't affect me at my level of identity. And I think that's at the core of what I want to kind of get at today Is that whatever that role is that you're in in expressing this call, um, that is not your identity. God works through all people according to his will by bestowing gifts at will, at certain in seasons and in times, for purposes um, that only he knows at times. And so we plead with him, as the psalmist did, not that we not lose our giftings or their expression, but that he not remove his spirit from us. That's what we beg of him. That like Cain, we remove from his presence, which is the worst of all possible scenarios. So no matter what, no matter where we find ourselves no and where you are in this season or what may come to us over the horizon. Never despair of God's mercy. There are worse things than losing one's vocation, as I mentioned earlier, because sometimes that's what it takes to gain Christ. As ministers, we must, above all else, constantly come back to where is my identity? Who, who am I? Whose am I? And what am I to do? It's not the end of the world, because it's the end of the world that we're preparing for. In Jeremiah 9, here we go again. It's the last time i have to do this, I think. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 9. And this is what the Lord says, verse 23. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Insert, let not the educated pastor boast in his wisdom. Or the strong man boast in his strength. Or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. And it is in these things that I delight. We don't boast in what we do for Christ. I did for 10 years. We don't boast in how popular we are, how intelligent or educated we are, how successful we are, how big our churches have gotten, how strong our ministries are. We boast in Christ and knowing him. But I think what happens is the subtle and constant movement against that identity transfer or that identity shift. As spiritual leaders, it is more and more importantly as children of God, we, we boast in a fierce determination to know and to be known by Christ. And that's a, it's a, maybe a distinction with a difference. It is not enough to know him or to know about him. And demons believe and tremble, right? right. So who, what, what is the condition when I stand before him in the judgment? What is the, what is the phrase that keeps me up at night? Christ's response to me as I present, as I lay out all of the things I've accomplished and done for him. He goes, I don't, I don't know you. I don't know you. So what I do it's not the condition. What I accomplish is not the condition. Does he know me? And that is where um, I come in, in this discussion around how not to quit. And I am a one-note band, a one-trick pony, a, you know, one whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, because I think this involves being relentless in prayer. I think it involves being obsessed with his word. I think it involves being committed to love sacrificially and generously to to the point of pain or, or death. And I think it involves being deliberate and constant in repentance. So I'm thinking about this, how not to quit, con- quitting what? I. I I certainly desire to persevere in ministry, and I want that for you, but I think it's bigger than that. This is how not to quit God. Because that's what matters at the end of the day. There are other things you can do to survive, there are other things you can do to enter eternity. How do I not let the work of God destroy the work of God in me? Tragically, that's a Bill Hybels quote. A few years ago, I found myself at a quitting point. I uh, was the first, the fastest, the freshest. I had been called to vocational ministry as a young man. stepped into it in my mid-30s after a successful career outside of ministry. It' part of a, an amazing movement of God. It was a runaway train. We just it, 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 it's surreal. I still look back and think, uh, marvel at some of the things that we got to be a part of. And in tandem with that and I've shared this with this group before, I think but in, in tandem with that, I was a very frustrated Christian if I was a Christian. I presumed on God's grace, I was stuck as a casual observer of Christ. I knew him, but I was, I was judgmental um, of others. And my identity was in what I was doing and how I was performing and what others thought of me. I never abandoned the faith, but <laughs> I, mean, I was getting as close to whatever deconstruction means as you can get and combined with other factors beyond my control, I resigned vocational ministry. As I was sharing with Cole earlier, my impression in that moment in January of 2015, setting in a high rise in Dallas, Texas, in a sales consulting firm, I, I, I failed. It, I'm sitting here Because God gave me an opportunity and I failed. And now he's removed this. Um, And my identity, in many ways, was shattered. Because no no matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what we think is our motive and why we're going in, that is a constant part of you that has to be mined and dealt with and examined and repented of. I don't care how long you've been doing this. I don't care how much you work with the Lord, how deeply you walk with him. Don't don't ever stop the examination. The psalmist said, search me, search me, know me, see if there's anything in me, because I won't see it. Maybe before it's too late. A year later, so I'm in this season. I'm like, I failed and I'm out of ministry and this is... I don't know what to do with this. A year later, my uh, marriage was over and my life was in a shambles. It just was one thing after another. And the comfort that I received <laughs> in that season from the psalmist was, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. From Psalm 127, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen watch in vain, you get up early and you go to bed late and you eat the bread of anxious toil Your life's a wreck. Don't you know it's the Lord who gives his beloved rest? He brought um, the life I had built, the marriage I had built, the family I had built, the ministry I had built, the financial situation I had built. He brought it all down. i made it in my image. And he took it apart piece by piece. But in the midst of these quitting places... God reached into my heart and simply put caused me to fall in love with Christ. I had known about him. And I cried when I watched The Passion. It was a movie, right? It moved me. I fell in love with him not before all hell broke loose (laughs) or after, it was in the wilderness place. When I could have quit him too, I I found that he had held me fast and had begun to shape and transform me in my desolation. And I guess I say that to say is that what you might think is quitting or a place of end may not be what... He's doing on this grander scheme. What, I, what had been a disconnected awareness or a mere appreciation of God became an obsession for union with Him. So now I'm learning to strap myself to Christ, as He teaches us in Matthew 11. Oh, come to me. Just come to me, you. You're weary and you're burdened. This is hard and it's a heavy responsibility. I'm going to hold you accountable for the souls in your care. You signed up for this. (laughs) I said, who? You said me. I said, okay. Well, now there's, what are you going to do with that? He doesn't just say, bear it. He says, come to me. If you're overwhelmed by this, if you're nearing a quitting place, and I will give you rest take my yoke get get up under get up under me next to me walk with me because it's easy and light because i'm doing the work because you keep dying to you and you keep reorienting your identity to me because i'm meek and gentle i care about you it matters you matter and it's there you'll find rest remember the rest that he gives it's his beloved You want to quit, build the house, protect it yourself, and get up as early as you can and go to bed as late as you can, working for him, and you'll flame out. I'm learning that the secret to prayer is secret prayer. The psalmist refers to as the secret place of his presence, the place where he is that's the only place that's real there's one place in my life that's real and that's my little prayer room and over the last eight years I've had 5,800 appointments with him in that room I've spent more time with him in that room than with any other human or entity That changes you. Could it be, I'm learning, that maybe it's possible that Jesus can become more real to me than the skin on my arms? What would it look like to immerse myself completely in him, in this quest? And I'm learning to hunger for his word in a different way. My only access and engagement with his word for years and years was to try to come up with some new idea or some pithy way of saying something that would get people's attention and get me an applause or an accolade. Now I just don't care if it made any sense to anybody else because this is what he's been doing in me. This is what he wants me to... It's, it's what he wants me to do he where he wants me to repent it's where he wants me to find that i have become less and he has become more but that only happens through meditation and contemplation and obedience ordering my life around this where his word is that's what's pervading and washing over me and in a word i would say what has Kept me from quitting God and moving through quitting points, at its core is prayer. All of of what I just described is all related to prayer, including consuming and receiving His Word and all of that. That's whole prayer. And that's the rub. Your potential disqualification, your drift toward the things that will destroy you, your family, your ministry. Your decision to walk away will always, always be preceded by prayerlessness. Jeremy Taylor was a 16th century Anglican cleric. He wrote Holy Living and Dying, it's a powerful book. He said, There's no greater proof in the world of our spiritual danger than the reluctance which most people always have, and all people sometimes have, to pray. So weary of their length so glad when they're done, so clever to excuse and neglect their opportunity. Yet prayer is nothing but desiring God, a desire for him to give us the greatest and the best things we can have, and that will actually make us truly happy. It's a work so easy, so honorable, and to so great a purpose that except for the incarnation of his son, God has never given us a greater argument of his willingness to have us be saved and our unwillingness to accept it. Of his goodness and our gracelessness, of his infinite condescension and our folly, that by rewarding so easy a duty with such great blessings. In a word, the surest path for how to quit is to neglect this grace. A life... devoted to prayer is, not, is how not to quit. And this practice changed me and is changing me. In context of my ministry and performance, prayer is what helps me reorient my identity and constantly coming back and evaluating. My identity is now in Christ, not in my vocation. I may or may not be here this time next year. It doesn't change anything about who I am. I love that obscure passage in Matthew. You always forget the chapter verse where Christ is looking at some people and he says, and, it, and the, the, the writer says, but Christ entrusted his heart to no man because he knew the heart of every man. Christ's identity was was constantly and only embedded in the Father. So he could love perfectly. He had no expectations. He didn't expect anything from you. You He wasn't going to let you expect things from him. He was going to let you be who you were. He's going to love you that way and point you to life. It's about balance, not busy. Prayer helps me know that I don't want to be busy in the work. I want to be intentional. I want to be urgent. But not hurried. It's not a badge of honor to be overwhelmed in ministry. And wherever you are in that place, follow Christ's example. Get to the wilderness, desolate place. Just keep going back there. It's where he was always going. Everything he did, almost all of his ministry... Happened between going or coming from places of prayer in desolate wilderness places. It's helping me not care about impressing anymore. A healthy detachment from what I think I should be and do and say and look and act, or what others think of those things. What if I just loved humbly and let people be who they are? It's helping me recognize that truth matters. Um, Loosen up the grip a little bit on my systematic theology (laughs) and fall in love with the God who made me Um, because maybe life matters more. Maybe people are more important than and right all the time. It's teaching me in my relationships that when I'm inevitably in a space of conflict or disagreement or argument, that I have an outlet. I don't have to ra- match and raise. I can beat a path to prayer. If there are unmet expectations in my life, with my wife or my family or the, w- the work I do or whatever, I'm not a, I don't have to be a victim of that. I can, I can go pray about that. There are stressors, money, deadlines, whatever. I don't have to just bake in it and steep in it. I can go express that. The, the, I cannot, I cannot it, it, at its most visceral, like, rubber meets the road level. Good pasturing starts in the home. Like if you want to, a, a sense of, am I on the right track here? What's it like with her or him? What's my, what's my default? What's my response? What's my impulse when uh, she doesn't greet me? the way I thought she should. When she says something that I know she knows is going to get under my skin, and it's, what am I going to do about that? You want a transformational experience? Don't engage before you go pray. I cannot tell you how many times over these last God helped me for the first 20 years. God restored us. I mentioned that our marriage was over. God restored us. And this, the, 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 the tale of two halves could not be more night and day. Because when that happens now, when those things happen, instead of that spiral and that cycle that we get into now, it's, I'm gonna, I need a minute. And she knows exactly what I'm going to go do. Or she needs a minute. I know exactly what she's going to go do. And what comes out of that every single time because it's repentance and God gives more grace to the humble is that what would have derailed us, what would have caused conflict. Think about that then in terms of your ministry and your, the, the people that you serve with, our teams. I mean, just throw the corporate stuff away. What's it like to be human in community? What does that look like? What should it look like? It affects my, my day in my life. This is a reorientation. as I mentioned earlier I, it was not it was not to, it was not to say something about me. it was to now just give you the example of pornography i I didn't think it was possible for people to not be plagued with it until I saw on an application for a Mission Aviation fellowship that you had to basically say or confirm or whatever, acknowledge that you hadn't ingested or consumed pornography for three years. And that was the moment where I thought, that means somebody's doing that or they're lying. I mean, I guess it could happen. I had a 30-year track record of not being able to shake it. So similarly, what my point about talking about prayer appointments was not to tell you, not to shine a light, it was to say, it, it, you can do this. Like, it, it can be done. And by God's grace, I'm seven years removed from that as well. But it's just this idea of re- reorientation, feeling, I'm feeling time until I pray. Like the most important meeting I have of any day is my morning appointment with the Lord and my evening appointment with the Lord. And it doesn't matter, as Sydney's with my daughter, it doesn't matter what's going on. In the evening, when it's appointment time, I'll be back in a little bit. Priorities and desire begin to have, have changed. And again, as I mentioned, identity, my platform. I, and I'm re- recognizing my identity now is not called pastor or minister. Identity is not even Christian per se. My identity is center. Because guess what that makes me? Desperate for mercy. It keeps me from going finally to a place where God can use me. Or isn't isn't he lucky? No, man, your identity is desperate sinner. Completely unable to help yourself or others. And when you preach from that place, that changes it. When you minister to each other from that place, it changes things. I want my I want I want my ministry, I want our ministry here to look more like AA than Southern, Western, South Church. Does that make sense? Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm a sinner. And I'm owning it. And you can get in on this because everything now is grace. Everything is grace. When I don't have expectations on other people, when, when I don't have a need they can meet, how, how hard is it to be offended? <laughs> My wife makes me mad a whole lot less often now because I don't care. <laughs> I don't need that. I don't need I don't need anything from you. My my posture and relationship toward you is to give. I want to love you. I want to help you. You smiled at me when I walked through the room. Guess what that is? Not, it's about damn time. Now it's grace. Oh my gosh. I love that. And at the end of it, this goes back to that full circle from the very beginning of the seeds that are planted in us early in our ministries that begin to erode and to destroy. Um, A prayer life, a life baked and steeped in communion and community with the the Lord um, is making me desire to disappear. Like I... I don't want. I don't want to be remembered. I don't want to be known. I only want Christ left. I just want to be a. a Like who is that? Isn't Christ glorious? I beg him for this all the time. Well make let maybe make me disappear, and then he can do what he wants, because I don't have any expectations. My identity's not there. So now if he gives me a platform or he gives me something to do or he gives me an opportunity to have a tremendous, see a tremendous movement or activity of his, it's grace. And I can go back to the wilderness desolate place where he is. So it's not about this goal of piety. It's a journey with him shaping us, why you would train. Um, you're... you're, you're you're building this kind of spiritual mus- muscle memory, um, where my default, my it's just going to be coming back to him as I, um, as I mentioned. You know, it took it, it, it took years to get to the place where I was. Desperate enough to realize my need for him, and then I fell in love with him and then he began to change me and, and shape me and, and begin to help me move through these things that had been so besetting and the, the passions that were so tyrannous to me but, but then it, it took it took more years for the shadows it's, it's taking more years for the shadows of those things to finally fade for the echoes, for the images to finally fade because we've we've, we've lived this way for so long but I, I would just encourage you because this is serious business I would just encourage you to take two steps pray like it's your job pray like it's your job get a rule get beads get candles get a room Ever you got to do pray like it's your job I'm, 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 I'm pleading with you to do this you should feel if you miss an appointment with him you should feel the way you would feel if you missed an anniversary a birthday or an appointment you stood somebody up for lunch What's that feel like? It sucks. I don't want to be that guy. I hate that. They were sitting there, they waited for 20 minutes and I just completely forgot. It makes it makes them it makes me feel like they're going to feel like I, you know, you know that feeling? Right? You should feel that pressure with the God of the universe who loves and adores you and wants to commune with you. The second step, consume scripture like it's your only meal. It's how you stay alive. And I didn't pray today. Didn't read. Didn't read scripture today. Meditatively. It actually, man, it's been a week. Would you go a week without food? Your pastors and ministry leaders pray like it's your job because that's that's what it should be. Preaching is not your job. Praying is your job. And consume his word and get into his word like it is what you need to stay alive. I would encourage you to be patient in that process. It takes time, as I mentioned, for the echoes of self-sufficiency to fade, for the desire to be admired to give way to humility, for the passions of lust and greed and pride and gluttony to be replaced by self-mastery. paradox is that true freedom is only found in discipline. Where I'm no longer a slave to the things that have so easily beset me. It's a path to intimacy with Christ. And you don't rush intimacy. And you don't achieve it without effort. Falling in love with somebody is not intimacy. It's a start that's not the end. You know, it's the the couple, the puppy love, first, second date couple, or maybe the newlyweds, and then the old couple sitting on the bench that haven't said anything to each other in 45 minutes. Who's closer to each other? It's most likely the old couple sitting on the bench. They got a lot of miles and a lot of time and a lot of investment in that. That's where we move. That's why prayer eventually becomes much quieter than words. Grit, determination, faithfulness, perseverance in prayer. That's the transforming work that shapes us into spiritual leaders, pastors, elders, whatever. Men and women who will not take their eyes off of Jesus come hell or high water. This is how to not quit what matters most. The pursuit of union with God himself, no matter what happens to us vocationally. What would you be willing to do to gain Christ? So, those are my thoughts for today. Praise God. Lord, will you be with us and help us? We're desperate for you, even if we don't know it. In your kindness, will you reach into our lives and help us see what's real? Amen. (laughs)